We live in a world of noise. And this world of noise often leaves us disoriented, distracted, and often deceived. First, we experience disorientation. We are constantly being bombarded with noise, whether it's from our iPhones, podcasts, Spotify, Netflix, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. You fill in the blank. Things are always vying for our attention. A term that has gained some recent traction in recent years is the term overstimulated, where people are describing this feeling of being overwhelmed or overcome by just all this sensory overload. And because we are constantly pushed in this realm of noise, it leaves us disoriented, unsure of how to go about things. The next is that we are distracted. We, leave, we live in the day and age of what some people are calling the attention economy, where the brightest minds in Silicon Valley are architecting devices, algorithms, apps, and operating systems to captivate your attention. Literally, people are being paid millions of dollars to keep your attention. And once they have it, they sell it to whoever's willing to pay as an advertiser. They make their money selling your attention. Yes, you buy the iPhone, but the iPhone does not work for you. It works for somebody else. And lastly is that of deception. We live in a moment where it feels impossible to know what is true. Um, a lot of people are calling this cultural moment a moment of truth decay, where truth is just rotting out. For example, right now, you can look anything up and you will find articles that confirm your hypothesis, right? It's so disorientating. So right now, you can look up, are eggs good for you? And you'll find a bunch of articles about all the benefits of eating eggs. Do the exact same thing, are eggs bad for you? And all of these different articles about how terrible they are for you on any given topic, Right? So in one moment, oh, we're doing this. No, that's bad now. No, we're doing this. Okay, that's bad now. We're left to eat basically nothing but oxygen, right? Because of all these different things that come out. And so right now, we live in a, a, a moment in time of disinformation, and it's hard to know what's true, and it's hard to navigate. Now, guys, that's breakfast, right? Much less the really important things in the world. And that's not just the lies of the world around us, but there's also the lies that we wrestle with within us. We are also facing an identity crisis. And there are so many people under the bondage of lies that our culture tells. And many are deceived. As a pastor, one of my primary duties is to help people unravel the, the, the tangled mess of lies they find themselves webbed in and help lead them towards a place of truth and freedom in that truth. And so many walk in this morning feeling the, the squeeze and the pull and the tug of the noise of the world that we live in. It is chaotic. We start our services with this moment of pause. And for many of us, that is the first and only moment of pause you have all week. That as we sit there in this moment of stillness, you begin to feel your soul catch up to your body. And as in these moments of silence, you begin to feel awkward because you're not exactly sure of what to do with the stillness. 
there was something that's been lost when I was growing up that's been completely lost now, and it's a very ancient thing. It's called the boredom. We don't even know what that means anymore, right? There's no such thing as sitting at the doctor's office looking at the abacus in front of you that nobody plays with, right? You can instantly be entertained, and so all this noise has its effect on our discipleship and our apprenticeship to Jesus. And more than that, I believe noise is a tool the enemy loves to use. I've quoted this book before, but to set the book up again, C.S. Lewis, who's been uh, pretty foundational for me, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. And the purpose of the book is it's written from um, the devil's point of view, Satan's point of view, and it's written amongst his ranks of demons who are working to actively oppose the work of God. And so the, the, the book is essentially letters from an older demon to a younger demon about what he's supposed to do. It's kind of like his training, if you will. And in one of the letters as he's writing, as the older one's writing to the younger one, he says this, we will make the whole universe noise in the end. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. If he cannot take you out, all he must do is distract you. All he must do is put enough noise in your world that he drowns out the voice of God. What would happen if, as a community, we learned how to step away from the noise of the world and tune in to the voice of God? Instead of disorientation, could we experience peace? Instead of distraction, could we experience presence? And instead of deception, could we experience truth? I believe that learning to listen to the voice of God is foundational to what it means to be a follower of Jesus and is the most important thing you can do with your life. And more than that, I would say we were made to hear God's voice. Now, I realize that as I start, as I start to talk about like hearing God's voice, some alarms start to go off. Whee! right? This sounds kind of like crazy talk, if we're honest, right? If you and I sat down for breakfast, and I'm like, I heard God this morning. You're taking your oatmeal and walking away, right? Because it just sounds like I'm about to give you some line of something crazy. And so if you will, allow me to take us on a tour of the scriptures to see if this is the worldview that the biblical authors hold and Jesus holds, and so we can have this as our foundation for what we build upon in the next few moments. I realize that as we go into this area of hearing God's voice, some would say at the least it's presumptuous, and at the worst it's dangerous to say things like that. And you may have been a part of a community where somebody heard God's voice, and it was just them issuing their complaint to you, or, or offering some sort of gossip about something else going on, hearing God's voice. However, I believe this is the found, foundational reality that the story of God is established upon. It is the reality that God speaks. And so if you will join me on this quick tour as we go through the scriptures and unpack the story of God and, underst- and, and uncover that it is a story of God speaking to us. And let's begin where we always should, first few pages of scripture in Genesis. The universe came into being... How? God 
speaks it into existence. He does not use his hands. He uses his voice. Everything from the green grass to galaxies comes into being because God declares it to be. As God speaks, things become reality. It is the very words of God that are at the, at the fabric, at the fibers of the universe. And here is something that we see in the first few pages of Scripture all the way through. When God speaks, it's because he wants to act. There is no gap between his action and his intention. As he speaks, things come to be. All throughout the pages of, all throughout the first few passages of Genesis, it says, and God said, and it was. As he speaks, it becomes. Now, not only is all of creation brought into existence because of God, God, because of God speaking, but humanity becomes by God's very words. In the first few pages, we learn what it means to be human because God speaks us into existence, and as he does, he then blesses us by giving us our marching orders, if you will. Craig Bartholomew and Michael Goheen in their book, The Drama of Scripture, say this. Genesis 1 and 2 portray God as highly relational. He speaks not only to give commands, but also to express his own involvement in the making of the cosmos. But most dramatically, when he creates humankind, he blesses them and speaks to them directly. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. There is a personal relationship between the divine king and his human subjects. God has a particular task and invites them to participate in it with him, filling and ordering the world which he has given them for their home. In the first opening pages of scripture, we see God speaking to humanity, not only to give us breath in our lungs, but to give us the purpose for which we are to live to be fruitful and to multiply, to rule and subdue over the earth along with God. We've done a ton of work on that. This should just be review at this point for you. But God is not just some impersonal being far away speaking things into existence. He actually wants to get up close and personal. Why? Because God wants to be known. David Benner says this, God's very nature is revelation. He did not simply reveal himself at some point in the past. God has, has no more ceased being revelation than he ceased being love. Revelation is his nature. And Christian spirituality grows out of the attunement of our souls to the revealing God who seeks us out and calls us to know him and his love. Who God is is revealing in his nature. The reason God reveals himself is because he wants to be known. His desire is to have relationship with us. And what is the nature by which God reveals? He speaks. And this is the story of the scriptures. The scriptures tell us that Adam and Eve would take walks with God in the cool of the day through the garden. But this relationship is ruined when Adam and Eve listen to another voice in the garden. They listen to the voice of the serpent. You see, sin creates a chasm between us and God, but that doesn't stop him from speaking. 
God is relentless in his pursuit to make himself known. And this brings us to the New Old Testament as a whole. Now, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks in the Old Testament about how God speaks. Hours and hours and hours here. We're not doing that today, so you can relax. But I want to highlight two stories. In the Old Testament, those who hear God's voice and share it are known as prophets. God would select a few individuals and speak to them that they would speak on to the masses on his behalf. This is the way in which he set it up. Moses and Noah and Abraham and others, right? God has selected to be his mouthpiece to a community, to a people. And so this is kind of the paradigm that we're working with here. The whole biblical narrative is filled with prophets hearing God's voice and speaking it to the people. Now, sometimes the prophets are listened to. I think of the example of Jonah, right, where he comes and preaches that pitiful sermon, like six words, repent or else you're going to die. And then, boom, the whole city repents, right? And other times, it's like Jeremiah. He's preaching for years and nobody responds, right? But God selects these individuals and they speak on his behalf. Now, two significant people I want to call out. First is Moses. The scene in Numbers 11. Says, so Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said because the relationship that Moses had with God is he would go up to the mountaintop and meet with God. God would give him direction. He'd come down. He'd give it to the people. They would move. So this has just finished happening. And he brought together 70 of the elders and had them stand around the tent. This is the tabernacle, the, the place of meeting with God. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him, Moses, and put it on the 70 elders. Check this line out. And when the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But here's the sad part, but did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Eldad and Medad, if you're looking for baby names, those are solid, had remained in the camp. They were, listening among the el- they were listed among the elders, but did not go to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But check out Moses' reply. He said this, are you jealous for my sake? I wish all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so we have this moment where the spirit falls, God's people prophesy. They begin to speak on his behalf. And the sad part is it happened once and didn't happen again. And as it's happening outside the camp, the people are freaking out. You're not Moses. You're not allowed to do this. And Moses is like, look, guys, if all of you could do that, wouldn't that be incredible? And that's an Easter egg for things about to come. Fast forward a bit um, in the narrative when we come to the prophet Joel. Well, Joel is looking for the day where God uh, reconciles his people. And he says this. Speaking on God's behalf, he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And so Joel is looking forward to a day when God's spirit rests on his people and they speak his words on his behalf. Now, we take a big shift from the Old Testament to the person and work of Jesus. 
Now, everything changes when it comes to Jesus. So the, the prophetic or this hearing God speak only happened for a select people at a select few moments in time. But all of them had this ache that one day, one day, it would be available for all of God's people. That at one moment, all people could hear God's voice and speak on his behalf. And all of that comes into reality in the person of Jesus. First, Jesus is a living prophecy. He's the living word. John 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So God's speaking, God's word is no longer shouted from the heavens, but it's wrapped in flesh, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of God's very spoken word. You see, God is so committed to revealing himself to us that he did not remain speaking it from afar, but God came near. His word became flesh and lived among us. And again, I love that word, came and dwelt among us, made us dwelling among us. The word is tabernacle, which is to draw your image to the exodus where they are, that God's presence is bound within the tent and now it's bound within the person who is Jesus. Things go on. As people, as the as uh, the New Testament authors look back on Jesus, specifically John in his letter of the Revelation, notice what he says. This he says this, for the spirit of prophecy, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So all that God is speaking in Jesus and in the New Testament testifies to Jesus. Jesus says of the Spirit that when the Spirit comes, his job is to testify to Jesus. So all this prophetic, all this God speaking culminates, finds its fulfillment, finds its life in the person and work of Jesus. It always starts and it always ends with Jesus. It always points back to him. Moving on, the author of Hebrews says this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times and in various ways. But check this out. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic embodied. He comes to live that out. To put this most simply, it's this. Do you want to know what the voice of God sounds like? It sounds like Jesus. He is God's revealed, embodied word, and it culminates in him. So if you want to familiarize yourself with the voice of God, get familiar with Jesus because he is God's representative. Colossians says that in the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, Jesus is the eternal one. God himself come to reveal himself to us. Now the story would be incredible if it just ended there, but it doesn't. As Jesus has been crucified and resurrected, and he's about to leave his disciples, do you know what he does to them? The scripture tells us that Jesus breathes on them and says this, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, hang out in Jerusalem for some time because I'm going to send the Spirit. Do not go until he comes. Forty days later, it is Pentecost. And the disciples of Jesus are all gathered together in the upper room. And then suddenly, fresh wind blows through the community. The Spirit descends on all of them. And they begin to prophesy. 
They begin to fulfill the scripture. They begin to fulfill the longing that Moses had, the longing that Joel had, the fulfillment that is in Jesus. The community starts to embody this, and they begin to speak on God's behalf. Now, here's what we see with the contours of the rest of the scriptures. First is this. The scriptures were the Jesus community's structure. It was their foundation. All that came out of the community was first and foremost born because of God's revealed word, that which God has already spoken. Nothing happened in the community that ever contradicted or counteracted or conflicted with the words already revealed by God himself. The, the, the scriptures were the community's structure. They gave it its support. But its shape was prophecy. What the community would do when they were come to a place of decision is come and ask the Holy Spirit what he wants to do, listen on behalf of what he's doing, and then do that. Prime example of this, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, they're in this prayer meeting, and they're fasting and praying about what the Spirit wants to do next, and the Spirit highlights Paul and Barnabas and says, I'm sending them out, lay hands on them and pray. And so that's what the community does. Paul, in all his missionary journeys, isn't just hitting the hot spots that he wants to go to. Oh, Corinth has a nice beach. I'd love to see Ephesus for the, you know. He, no, he sits and he waits upon the Spirit and he goes to where the Spirit lights him. There's even a time in the, in the, in the book of Acts where Paul longs to go to Macedonia but can't because the Spirit forbids him to go. The shape of the New Testament community was we're going to listen for the voice of God and whatever he says we're going to do. And so that's what gives, the, the, the structure is the scriptures for the New Testament community, but the, the shape of the community is prophecy. And so this is why when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he says this, 1 Corinthians 14.1, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For Paul, operating in the prophetic was essential to what it means to be followers of Jesus. Now, if I've lost you, welcome back. Happy to have you here. <laughs> to summarize, it's this. God speaks. It is he who is still speaking. And we were, to, we were made to hear his voice. We were made to listen. So our responsibility as a community is to heed his voice. Now, I want to be very clear. We don't do this because we want more experience. You know, we're not like, hey, we need to spice things up in church a little bit, so let's start, you know, doing something like this. We come to this place because this is what the scriptures faithfully teach. We do not come out of this for more experience. We come to this faithfully following what it means to be a follower of Jesus according to the scriptures. And that's just the short recap. We could, do, we could have done a whole series about this reality. So all that to say this, if God is speaking... It's our job as a community to listen. This brings us to Jesus' words when he says this in John 10, 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. First, it's this. Listening is at the heart of following Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means you heed the voice of God. Pete Gregg says this, learning to hear God's voice, his word, and his whisper is the single most important thing you will ever learn to do. Hearing, God's, hearing God is not peripheral. It is integral to human history. 
Neither is it an optional extra for wild-eyed mystics and those who happen to be spiritually inclined. Hearing God is essential to the very purpose for which you and I were made. Without it, everything falls apart. Jesus is clear in John 10. My sheep know my voice. His sheep is a shorthand term for saying his disciples, those who follow after him. And he says, and they know my voice. To be a disciple requires listening. Someone who is a disciple is someone who listens to their rabbi or their teacher. And so listening is at the center of life with God. However, this idea is not original to Jesus. There is an ancient prayer that Jesus himself grew up praying that gives shape for, shape for the people of God to be a listening people for millennia called the Shema. It gets this name because of the first word in the prayer, which is here, which is the word Shema. Now, this is a hard word to translate in English because it's kind of two words mashed into one. And it essentially means this, to listen and to obey, to hear and to obey. This is the idea of Shema. Parents, you understand this. When you tell your kid, you're not listening, does that mean they didn't hear what you said? No, it means they didn't hear what you say and obey what you had said. And so we understand this idea conceptually, but we sometimes categorize listening just in the ability to allow sound to enter one's ears. But for the biblical authors, listening is so much more. It is allowing the words to permeate the person and that to dictate and change behavior that there was a response necessitated by the very act of listening. And this is why, in a ton of Jesus' prayers, or a ton of Jesus' teachings, he ends with this line, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. What is he saying? Did the crowd not all just hear what he said? No, but what he's saying is this kind of listening that permeates down into the person that changes the way that they live. This is the biblical paradigm for listening. And Jesus says, his sheep hear and obey his words, and they know his voice. Now, we are in a series of prayers. You might be wondering, how did we get here? It seems like we've derailed. Actually, no. Remember, prayer at its simplest is a conversation with God. And a conversation requires at least two individuals both sharing and receiving, both speaking and listening. Our modern conception of prayer is just us telling God what's going on. And that's not bad. It's a great start. But it's only one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is us listening back to God. In honest conversations I've had with people, they've been honest with me and said, that they find prayer boring. Now, before we get all high and mighty and religious on them, right, if you were honest with yourself, you could kind of understand that if you're the only one talking, if you're the only one sharing things, because guess what? You'll get bored with yourself pretty quick. I mean, you're not that interesting. You know what I mean? Like, for hours and hours and hours of prayer, it's like, come on. I only got so much to say, man. And it feels like you're not giving and taking in this conversation a little bit. And you've probably had that experience in real life where you're trying to get a conversation going with someone and it's going nowhere, right? How quickly does that conversation end? 
very fast. You start making up excuses. Bathroom, got to get coffee, got to go check on that tree over there, whatever, just to get out of the awkwardness of this other person not responding to you. You've also been on the side of the conversation where someone's only a sharer and not a receiver. You know what I'm saying? I, I call them human black holes. It's mean, but it's true. Because once you get caught in their vortex, there's no getting out, right? It is just on and on and on, and it doesn't even matter what you're saying back. They're not even listening to you, you know? They just want to unload all their stuff on you. And we love them people, and they're, they're, they're gifts from God who come to us, right? But they are human black holes, okay? That's just the truth of the matter. Now, judge me all you want, but you know it's true. And so you can see when there's a big shift in the conversation one way or the other, how it's unfruitful. And so prayer is this balance of sharing and receiving, speaking and listening. And it is often the forgotten half of prayer where we open ourselves up to God for that which he wants to speak. Soren Kierkegaard says this, a man prayed, and at first he thought prayer was talking, but he became more and more quiet until in the end he realized prayer was listening. And so prayer becomes an adventure when you begin to launch into the deep of hearing God's voice. I'll tell you this, you open yourself up to hear God's voice, you'll never be bored in prayer again. I can almost guarantee it. But if we're honest, why do we find it so hard to hear God's voice? I'd say first because it's easy to miss. We miss God's voice. We, we don't hear God's voice because it's easy to miss. First, because it's too familiar. P. Greg says this, most of the time we miss the voice of God, not because it is too strange, because it's too familiar. You probably wonder, okay, we're talking about hearing God's voice how on earth do we do that, you know? Like, do I just sit there and the Cheerios magically align in my cereal bowl to give me some sort of a message, right? Am I trying to piece together signs as I'm on the highway of what God is trying to tell me, right? Looking at these construction signs, hoping that they'll say something meaningful to me. How is it that I hear God's voice? Well, God primarily speaks to us through our thoughts. I realize what's happening in here is an interstate highway, you know, there's all kinds of thoughts coming across your mind. And so you're wondering, how am I supposed to discern? We'll come to that in a moment. But first this, the way God speaks to us most often is in our minds. Paul tells us that we have, as believers, the mind of Christ. We have access to his thoughts by way of our thoughts. This is all where it's happening. And so it's easy to dismiss because you'll just think, that was just a weird thought I just had, right? It's easy to dismiss it as something as that because it comes into this busy highway of things happening within your mind. And so if you're waiting for the booming voice of God, chances are it's not coming. Like if you think listening to God is like sitting in your living room and saying, Andrew, you know, and you hear it from above or something, it's probably not going to happen. If it does please come and talk to me because that is a pretty remarkable experience. But chances are that's not the way it's going to work, and that's not the way God speaks typically now. Why? Think about what happens in the Scripture, this, this map that we have. The Spirit descends on an individual, and then they're able to hear God's voice and speak it. Right? That's the whole biblical thing. And so you, if you are a follower of Jesus, God's placed his Spirit inside you. 
There's no longer a need for him to shout from above. He whispers within. And that's how we hear his voice. We also miss it because God speaks to each of us differently. You know, you get around people who hear God's voice and you try to imitate or do what they do or hear the way they hear. But here's the reality. God speaks to each of us in our own language. And God speaks to us in the way that we would receive it the best. The way he'd speak to me is different than the way he'd speak to you than the different way he'd speak to you than the way he'd speak to you. It's all different. It's catered to each individual's experience. And so you might be missing the voice of God because you're looking for him to speak in this way, but when he's actually been coming to you in another way entirely. I love this quote. Elizabeth Browning says this, Earth crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. And it's this imagery of Exodus. Now, uh, you're familiar with the burning bush story. It was not super uncommon in the middle of a desert for bushes to catch on fire, i.e., you lived in New Mexico or California for any amount of time, you know they just go ablaze, right? It's hot, it's dry, whatever. But here's what was crazy about this bush. It wasn't consumed. It wasn't burned up. It was burning, but it wasn't going to a crisp, basically. So the only way Moses was able to have that moment with God is why he paid attention. He's like, that's super weird that that bush isn't a crisp yet, you know? So I'll get closer and does and encounters God. Otherwise, it could have just been dismissed as another walk and another day. Paula D'Arcy says this, and it's not on the screens, but she says, God comes to us disguised as our life. You might be missing the very ways God wants to speak to you because you're looking for him elsewhere, not the ways he's coming to you already. And lastly, I think we miss God's voice because we didn't do the last thing he told us to do. There was something God had already spoken, God has already made clear to you, and you said, eh, thanks, but no thanks, and ignored that. Jesus makes it clear here. His voice, hear his voice. His sheep hear his voice, and they do what? Follow him. They obey. There is no new revelation if you're not living in obedience. So you feel like you haven't heard from God recently? Go back to the last thing he told you and do that. Obey that, and, no, and more will come. But all of this begs the question, okay, dude, how do we hear God's voice? Like really pragmatic, really practically. And there's two ways primarily, by way of the scriptures and by way of the spirit. Let's first talk about hearing God's voice in the scriptures. Where it always starts and where it always ends with is Jesus. Jesus is God's word. He is the word of God. So we hear God most clearly in the life and teachings of Jesus that are found in the scriptures. Start there. That's what God's voice sounds like. It sounds like the life of Jesus. Secondly, it's the scriptures themselves. We learn to hear God's voice by becoming familiar with the scriptures. The scriptures testify of themselves that they are alive, they are active, they are moving, and they're, they're accomplishing the work in which God is sending it out to do. And so God is actively speaking already through his word. It is the foundation for our faith. And so is there a practice from the way of Jesus where we can hear God's voice in the scriptures? I'm so glad you asked. There is. It is called Lectio Divina. A really standard way to say this is to pray through the scriptures. 
Now, early church mothers and fathers developed a way to listen to God's voice in the scriptures through something called Lectio Divina, which literally translates to spiritual reading. Now, what we're good at in the West is Bible study. You know what I'm saying? You get your coffee out, your Bible, your commentaries, your Bible project videos. You get it all mapped out. You take your Instagram photo so it happened for real, right? And then, and then you like jump in there and you get to see, oh, you know, this is the context. And this is good. Study the Bible. Do that, please. But that's not the same as Lectio Divina. When we study, we are engaging God with our minds, which is good and beautiful, and we should. But Lectio Divina is opening up the innermost parts of our world to God and to his word. Now, what this is not is Bible roulette. You know where it's like, God, what are you saying to me now? All right, and then you're in some obscure passage in, Lex, in Leviticus about cooking a goat in its mother's milk, and you're trying to decipher that, and what is that supposed to mean for me today? Trouble, right? Cool things have happened out of Bible roulette. I don't recommend it, though, however. Now, um, that's, that's one way of thinking it, or another way of thinking it is like taking a scripture and then twisting it to mean what we want it to mean. Not at all what we're saying either. What we're saying is come to God's word as it is and let it mold and shape you. Let it speak to the deepest parts of who you are. Eugene Peterson, the man, the myth, the legend, says this, the primary organ for receiving God's revelation is not the eye that sees, but the ear that hears, which means that all of our reading of Scripture must develop into a hearing of the Word of God. In the early church, most people weren't literate that they couldn't read, right? Um, but what was foundational for the early church was the reading of Scripture. They would come and gather together, and somebody who was literate would read it aloud. Not everybody had their own copies. That was wicked expensive and incredibly difficult to do. So let's say you were the church in Corinth. I would say, hey, guys, Paul wrote us a letter. Let's all gather around and listen to it. And we pull out the scroll, and we read the letter, and then it's like, all right, now what do we do with that kind of a thing? There was no, everyone had their own copies and beautiful highlighters and we're going all through. That's how it was. It was the reading aloud of scripture. And anytime the community of Jesus gathered, they read scripture. That is why in our community, before we start in the proclamation of the word, there's a public reading of scripture to honor that legacy and heritage that we have. But it is this, this way of reading in which we, we actually receive from God the hearing of the scriptures, reading it aloud. So how do you do Lectio Divina? First is simply read. We begin by reading the text slowly. Not, and God said to Moses, wow, that was really good. Reading it slowly. Taking slower chunks at a time. I think the reading through the Bible of the year thing is awesome and you should do it. But if I were to have a preference, I'd say do this instead. I'd rather you take small chunks at a time and actually digest them than to drink through the fire hose of scripture, right? And hope something's stuck, you know? And so we do this portion of reading through the scriptures slowly. And then when you finished, you do it again. And then when you finished, you do it again. And you do it again until you feel the words kind of permeate down within your person. That it's not just business as usual, but something happens as the word comes alive. The next movement is to reflect. You slowly read the passage and reflect on what the passage is saying. Choose to rejoice over the truth of the scriptures and keep repeating this process until something shimmers out to you. A word, a phrase, an idea, and you sit and you hold that. Now, this is where most of us end. It's like we have this little, little gem that we've developed. Look at it, it's so pretty, right? And then we're just like, thank you, God. And then we just move on for our day. 
Lectio invites us at that moment to then pray through that reality. Once you've been given this gem and you received it, now you pray through it. And you pray into it, and you pray for whatever that thing is. We turn our reflections into prayer. We pray through the text. We begin to enter into a conversation with God about the text. And this conversation may look like repentance or rejoicing or petition or intercession or whatever it is the Spirit is inclining us to do based on that moment. And lastly, we contemplate. And so as you've entered into this conversation of God, you carry that moment with you throughout your day. You don't leave it there where you just were with your cup of coffee at your dining table. You carry that moment with you throughout the day. I love how Eugene Peterson defines contemplation. He says this, contemplation means living what we read, not wasting any of it or hoarding any of it, but using it up in living. It is, the, it is a life formed by God's revealing word, God's word read and heard, meditated and prayed. So that's how we hear God's voice in the scriptures, through that practice. Now, how do we hear God's voice by the Spirit? I'm running out of time, so I'm going to have to go fast here, so hang with me. So, they're the ABCs of listening to the voice from the Spirit. You ready? I made it super simple for you. Is it affirming? Is it biblical? Is it Christ-like? When we're hearing words from the Spirit, it has to fit within one of those parameters. If it violates any of those, it's probably the burrito you had and not God, right? Or the medication you're taking and not God. Affirming biblical Christ, like first affirming. If the voice you're hearing in your head sounds condemning, it's not the voice of God. Straight up. It's not. Now, does God speak words of conviction? Yes. But those are for the building up, not the condemning down. The Spirit will highlight something and invite you into something. That's what conviction does. Condemnation says you're stuck where you are. Conviction says, here's where we're at, but here's where we can go. Come with me. That's the difference between conviction and condemnation. So if the voice sounds like, you're the worst, that's not God's voice. But if the voice sounds like you're stuck, but here's a way out, that's an invitation from the Spirit. So it is affirming. Is it biblical? If it contradicts with the Scriptures, it's not God's voice. Straight up. There's no other way around it. God's never going to contradict his own revealed word already. If God's like, you should have three wives, that's not God's voice, right? Clearly contradicts, his, clearly contradicts the scriptures, right? And so you should not do your taxes, right? Contradicts God's word, you know, about paying with Caesars, Caesars. Anyways, moving on. Um, tax season coming up, so get ready. But third, Christ-like. Does it look like Jesus? Does it look like his teaching and his ministry and his life? If the answer to that question is no, then chances are it's not from him. A, B, C, affirming biblical Christ-like. This is the paradigm. We move forward. Now, this is what uh, the way that we hear God's voice first is through prophecy, which is something as a church we've been trying to engage more and more and more into. And prophecy, that might bring up some baggage for you. It's not telling of the future. There's no crystal balls. There's no you're getting pregnant in two weeks. Nothing like that. But the prophetic in the scriptures um, don't function in that same way. It's simply this. Tyler Staten says this. To hear God's voice on behalf of a person or a group. That's it. That's what the prophetic is. And the prophetic comes to us in a few ways. It comes to us through the scriptures. Sometimes God brings a scripture to mind that he wants to speak to you in that moment. Sometimes it comes through a word or a phrase. Sometimes it comes as like pictures or films in your mind. It can come as impressions or feelings within your body. It can come as dreams or visions. And lastly, it can come as songs, uh, things, uh, songs from the spirit as Paul calls them. And so um, February 8th, 
It wasn't in the announcements, but you're getting first sneak peek. We're going to be doing a prayer training, and I'll be going over this more in depth. It'll be a Wednesday night, and then we'll actually do the stuff. And so um, we don't have time to get into all the details here now, but we will on the 8th. So those are the ways in which God speaks. The next way that God speaks is often through his whisper. God speaks to us through our circumstances, through things happening in our life. The Spirit could be inviting us into stuff. He speaks through our desires. Now hear me in this. Not all of your desires are from God, but God can use your desires. Thinking through that paradigm, affirming biblical Christ-like. And lastly is through community. One of the ways God speaks to us most often and is most often ignored is through community, is through the people around us. You may have this moment if you're married or have a close relationship where someone's been telling you something for months and then someone else says it and you're like, oh, dude, I never thought of that before. And the person you live with or their life with you is just giving you the evil eye in the corner. You never heard that before? Really? Right? I've been saying it for months. It's been written on the bathroom wall or whatever it is, right? And so... The way that we most often miss God coming to us is in the people we do life with the most. And so, again, the paradigm affirming biblical Christ-like. And lastly, it's through the act of listening prayer. Now, which is simply being quiet before God and letting him speak into your mind or your heart. Remember, God speaks through our thoughts. So because the Holy Spirit is in you, God has direct access to your inner life. He has direct access to your mind and imagination. And essentially, it works like a guided thought. For example, if I tell you, think of a sunset, what's coming to your mind? A sunset, right? It's a guided thought. Now, it sounds kind of creepy, but it's not. But, like, that's the way that God works is something will come into your mind, and God's trying to guide you into a direction. Now, when we, uh, when we have a thought come to mind, we often think, is it God? Is it just my head? And, it's, of course, it's in your head. That's how God primarily speaks. Your head is where your thoughts are formed, emotions created, ideas are born, and all of life is, quote-unquote, in our head. And this is our experience of consciousness. Now, all of our thoughts must, like prophecy, be tested, weighed, and determined their source. But the truth remains, God speaks to us through our thought life. So again, affirming biblical Christ, like we weigh the things that we hear, and if it aligns with those things, chances are it's a safe bet to hear that it's from God. Let me give you an example. You have come to the moment of prayer. You're anxious about going into the workday, so you come and you invite God into your day. You say, God, I'm just going to take a few moments to invite you here. And as you're listening, you hear, be kind to the lady at reception. And you're like, "Mm, right? You have issues with her. She always has bad coffee breath. She always takes the last donut. It's her, you know? And you're like, I'm not sure. You run it through the lens of ABC. Is it affirming biblical Christ? Like, yeah, yeah, it's all of those things. Chances are the Spirit's inviting you into something like that. And so our job is to hear and to obey. If it lines up with all of those things, then chances are the Spirit's inviting you into something. So to go and to respond and say, Holy Spirit, how do you want me to do that? What does this look like? And engage in a conversation with him. Now, here's the really fun part. Let's take some time to do this right now. Would you join me in standing? At Zion, we want to be a people who don't just hear the word, but obey it. This is the model. And so what we want to do now is just create some space for God to speak to us. Now, no one's going to grab the mic. No one's going to come up here and, and say anything like that. But here's what we are going to do. We're just going to open ourselves up to God and say, Lord, do you want to speak anything to me right now? And then 
pay attention to the thoughts coming in your mind. If you're thinking about the cheeseburger you're about to have after this, chances are that's not the spirit, that's you. Put that on the back burner. If you find your mind drifting to, oh, should I get a number two or number three, bring it back by a simple phrase of saying, come Holy Spirit. As you feel your mind wander, say, come Holy Spirit and bring yourself back to listening to God. And just keep saying, is there anything you want to say to me, God? And if it fits within those parameters, affirming, biblical, Christ-like, chances are he's speaking to you. And so the worship team is going to play a little bit. And as they do, we're just going to have some time to do this now. And then Michelle will come up and lead us in response. But let's take a few moments to do some listening prayer.